You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Hewitt. Hello, everyone. This is Daniel Heward, lead fellow and your host for Build for Impact. Today, I'm joined by a colleague and super contributor to the forward movement of USGBC, Amy Costello. Amy is a environmental engineer, professional engineer, uh, and also the sustainability manager at Armstrong Flooring. Uh, Armstrong's a global flooring design and manufacturing uh, corporation based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here in the U.S., and she's responsible for developing and managing sustainability strategies and initiatives within uh, the organization. I do want to make sure that I mention a couple other things. Amy and I got to know each other by working on uh, collaborating on USGBC's technical advisory committees. She was on the uh, materials committee. I was on the uh, water committee. And, uh, and and we've been collaborating for several years. Um, Amy, uh, I'm going to hand it off to you to say hello. Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks. Daniel, I'm happy to, to be here today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's uh, it's always fun. Um, and, and we're getting some really great uh, following of, of these uh, Built for Impact uh, sessions where we talk about uh, our four pillars, sustainability, resiliency, material transparency, and wellness. And normally we dive deeper into a few other uh, impacts that, that we've worked on together and individually. So let's, I know that you've got a huge history with USGBC, uh, never afraid to contribute. So let's start with sustainability. What are your your thoughts on sustainability, Amy? Um, I've been working in the sustainability field for the for really the last uh, thirty years, probably before they even called it uh, sustainability. Um, so yes, no, Armstrong uh, was actually one of the founding members of the United States uh, Green Building uh, Council. So we have been heavily involved uh, in in that process. Um, and I guess I'm a true believer. But I believe in the whole you know the concept of sustainability. Um, and that it's it's definitely the, the, the right way to, to move forward, and it's definitely a, a win-win for, for businesses. It's just, to me, uh, sustainability just makes business sense. I, I, I've got to concur. You know, it's pretty obvious uh, that, that it makes business sense. It's really great that we see the work that we've done over the years build uh, a really great business case for sustainability and the rationale to walk away from you know, really first cost responses to things that that typically don't have really significant ROIs. And, <clears throat> I, you know, I just want to add to our, our listenership that that Amy's got a, a really vast experience um, in the sustainability world, uh, do, doing all kinds of stuff. She was uh, with uh, the Virginia Department of Transportation before joining Armstrong. And, and worked with a whole bunch of other entities as well, uh, including uh, the uh, ASTM uh, and the General Services Administration, where she's um, done stuff in advisory roles. Amy, what do you think of, of those entities uh, and their approaches to sustainability and how, uh, I guess, that collaboration really helped move you forward in, the, in this sustainability world? I think what's interesting is how everybody's working on the same ideas, but from a slightly, slightly different direction. And I and I think that's one of the, the pieces of 
of my career that I've really enjoyed the most is the fact that I've been able to see different entities working on the same idea. So when I worked at the Virginia Department of Transportation, uh, one of the roles that I had was I was their air quality uh, manager. So I worked with the areas that had non-attainment area, non-attainment areas, areas that had poor air quality, really trying to look at strategies um, that we at the Department of Transportation could implement through the design of our roadways to be able to reduce the amount of emissions that would come from the cars that would be traveling on our roadways. And, and to me, it's kind of fascinating how that sort of same concept, you know, while we were working on it in an outdoor arena, you know, that translates into, into the built environment and, and really translates even to the fact that you know, when you build a building, people have to get to the building and really the whole sort of network and the opportunity that, to create a system where it all works together. And I think when I was on the, the GSA, their green building or their green advisory committee, I think that's one of the things that they were really trying to do is sort of bridge that gap between the different um, between the different sectors, the building, the building environment, the transportation uh, sector and kind of pulling them all together. That's that's really cool. And, and, you know, you and I have worked in this world long enough where we do have a, a really good grasp of resiliency. And, and you know, really, uh, you know, the, the pillars that I talk about, you know, the sustainability, resiliency, materials, transparency and wellness, there's an interconnectedness between them all. Uh, and you have to have an element of them all, uh, I, I feel, for to make impact and to really be successful. Your, your thoughts on, on resiliency, because I know that you guys have a deep commitment um, in that regard uh, with, with Armstrong. Actually, at this point, Armstrong Flooring, we completely make resilient flooring. And we've been making resilient flooring for years. And with the whole resiliency movement, I think it's really bringing more focus and attention to um, resilient flooring or flooring that will, will spring back, that will, will be able to, to um, have really long durability. And so I think the idea of thinking about how you build and the concept of durability is, is so important. And I think that's something that in the short term, I think we've lost a little bit of that focus on things that are durable. We just sort of think, oh, well, this broke or this doesn't work. And I, and I think it's really kind of coming back to kind of previous generations and the way they thought about building and design. And, and it's not something that should be short term, but you're really thinking about long term and thinking about durability. And I think, it, you know, it's even more important now with climate change and with the, the issues that, that we're having associated with that. It's really making us think about how we design and how we build and that, you know, it, we shouldn't be a throwaway society, that we really should think about the long term and durability. Yeah, and that's great. You know, I needed to throw in that resiliency plug um, because, you know, what you guys do at Armstrong is really amazing. And I really think that uh, um, you were starting to see some global movement towards resiliency. And I've shared this before in, in Build for Impact, where in Canada, uh, the building code is going to require the design team to actually do a resiliency statement that that the project's not around for a short term it's not a first cost based project it's one that's intended to have a long lifespan and they actually have to articulate that as part of the design submittal as you know in order to get permitted it's a necessary component uh and i think that's a move forward in in you know it's really interesting that they 
actually went to legislating it. And I'm not sure if it's so much legislating to be restrictive. I think it's legislating to sort of move things in a, in a considerate, uh, you know, pathway for the, for the future. Um, and, and, you know, are we, are we engaged enough um, in, in our resiliency movement? Do we need to do more? I, I think we do need to do more. I think resiliency is still in its infancy. I don't think that the general population understands the concept of uh, resiliency. I think it's, you know, putting it into legislation. I think that helps raise the awareness, clearly, will raise the awareness in, in Canada. Um, you mentioned that I'm on the ASTM um, I actually chair the ASTM Sustainable Manufacturing Committee, and one of the things that that committee is working on now is we're actually working on a standard guide for the general principles of resiliency, really to help people understand, um, you know, what's involved um, with resiliency. That's that's a great initiative, and and it's one of those things that um, kind of leads me in our our discussion today around another thing that, that really comes to top of focus for me. And I'm not sure if our listenership are aware, but, you know, uh, in, in a combination resiliency effort um, to be really resource responsible and a materials transparency effort, um, can, you, can you share, you know, I don't want to steal the thunder uh, because I'm really proud of what you guys do. Can you share what you guys uh, do generally at, at, uh, at Armstrong? Um, related to, um, you know, resource effectiveness and efficiency, uh, recycling, oops, I may have touched down on something there, and materials transparency. Sure. No, we, we're heavily, heavily involved. And so, sometimes I think we don't promote or talk about some of the things that, that we do. Um, it always, to me, is so important what is happening at our manufacturing plants. I think, I think you know, the, the commercial market always wants to focus on the certifications and, and that type of thing. But to me, it's so important what's actually occurring in your, your manufacturing plants. So Armstrong Flooring, we have, have committed to reducing our energy, water, and waste uh, by 25% over our baseline, which is uh, uh, 2014. Um, and we've committed to doing that by 20, 2024. And we're working our way uh, through through those goals. Um, so many things that when you have projects that you can be able to um, reduce your impacts and really how you operate your business. You know, being able to recirculate water so that you can you you know don't throw away the water, but you can recirculate it through through your system to to reduce water. You know, energy uh, reduction projects. We just won a award from the Department of Energy. Um, we were selected as being the best of the betters. Uh, we're part of the the DOE's uh, a better plants program, and you know it was this, it was a simple idea. Um, we basically updated our shutdown procedures, and I hadn't thought to look at our shutdown procedures because the energy during shutdown, when the plants are closed for the weekend, is so low. And I hadn't occurred to me that maybe this is an opportunity to even further reduce the amount of energy. And I was surprised that we were able to further reduce. Uh, the amount of energy that we um, have at our plants during during shutdown, we were actually able to reduce it by by 50%, which is is pretty pretty impressive. Um, so there's always opportunities, I think, to continue to improve and to get better um, at what you're what you're doing. And that ladders up to to our products. So we do life cycle assessments for all of our products, um, so we understand the impacts. And life cycle assessment is really looking at the product from that. Um, 
the whole life. So looking from the raw materials to the to the transportation of those materials to the, the to the operations and what's happening at the plant um, and to and making the product all the way through to the end of life. And so we use um, life cycle assessment really to help guide us in terms of how we can further reduce our products um, impacts. Uh, we recently had a product that we um, launched uh, where we had done life cycle assessment for for the product and it was a, a bio-based tiler and we did the life cycle assessment and we realized that the biggest impacts in that product were not at our manufacturing plant but were actually in the use phase of that product and so we redesigned that product and put a coating on the product to reduce the amount of maintenance that would be required for that product and it was a small amount it was about a five percent reduction in the overall um, carbon footprint of the product but if you think and that was in one year and if you think about that product it's going to last for 30 years and it really adds up uh, over time of how big of a reduction a small change like that can can really have um, so we, we do life cycle assessments um, we're very we have you know um, health product declarations we have declare labels you know we're very much willing to provide uh, transparency information to provide you know content what's in our products um, to to our customers um, we make that information you know publicly available on, on our website on the, the health product declaration collaborative um, so lots of, lots of information there and then we also have our recycling program our post-consumer recycling program um, this year we celebrated 150 million pounds of flooring that we have brought back through our, 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 our recycling program, our, what we call our on and on recycling program. Um, I, I think it's pretty amazing. You hear a lot about plastics uh, these days, um, but I think the fact that you, if you can take the plastic easily out of the waste stream, plastic, especially PVC is, you know, it's a, it's a thermal plastic, which means that you can melt it back down into its original format. So with our flooring, we're able to bring that material back to our facilities and, and reprocess it and reuse it again. And I think that's a really awesome attribute um, associated with, with uh, PVC um, materials. And sure, you maybe you don't want to use use a PVC in a you know in a Brussels spout bag or in you know in something that can't be recycled. But for really big items, you know, like vinyl siding and windows and doors and flooring, you know, I, I think it's a really good thing to be able to to take those products at the end of life and to be able to recycle them and keep them in the um, keep them in the in the marketplace. You touched in on several key components there, and I'm really happy that you shared uh, with with our audience the the best practices that you guys do at Armstrong. 150 million pounds of vinyls recycled. That's that's an amazing number. And in you know, so that our audience is kind of aware, um, you know, we typically see the green building world was initially very negative in their approach to vinyls. Uh, um, you know, because they didn't want us using PVCs. But the reality is, if they're used effectively and they're and they're not uh, being in a format that's injurious to people, they are really great solutions for you know for use. And you touched down on several several of them. You know, we're never going to see an end to to vinyl clad windows. We're never going to see an end to uh, siding or, or soffits or other components to the exterior buildings uh, made of vinyls. And we see a big, 
you know, amount of that stuff used in residential construction. But then, you know, the use of polymers and vinyls um, in interior floorings uh, is, is huge. You know, we are seeing uh, carpets made from completely recycled, uh, you know, uh, polymers and, and vinyls. So if we do it and follow the lead of an organization like Armstrong, then we can see how it's done effectively and it's a, a solution basis instead of a problematic basis that goes into a landfill. Um, so, you know, I, I can't, you know, thank you uh, enough for, for those great things. And I, I think you've, you've touched down a real lead in to, to wellness. You, you know, properly uh, installed and, and considered composite materials, uh, um, polymer materials and vinyls are, are taking a big step forward now when we consider the the need for wellness especially in our, our current pandemic situation globally your your thoughts on on where we go with with wellness both the applicability of what you guys do and then your maybe your bigger picture thoughts amy sure no i think i think it's balance my, my mother used to always say everything in moderation and i think Right now with the pandemic and with COVID, I think you're seeing, you know, vinyl, you can you can um, disinfect uh, vinyl. So it's something that's easy to clean in, in hospital situations. And I think you're seeing people realizing, wait a minute, this this not only, you know, it has vinyl, but you're also able to to disinfect it. So it's kind of the rethinking of the attributes associated um, with a product. And so there's, you know, lots of different things to, to think about and to consider. Um, with that. Um, so in terms of wellness, I mean, I, it's hard to argue with, with wellness. I mean, we all want to have, you know, healthy, we all want to be healthy and have, you know, fulfilling, happy, happy lives. So it's really, it's hard to, to argue, argue with that. And I, I think we're making progress, I think, through transparency. Um, we're making progress in helping people better understand um, what materials are made of and what concerns there could potentially be um, with materials. So I think, I think we're moving in a very positive direction. I would concur in, you know, um, just for, for transparency to our audience, uh, Armstrong is one of our global clients with Global Green Tag, and you do uh, our product health declaration, which also includes a health rate. What's really great about that is you're a strong believer in this healthiness in use for the end user, how healthy a product is in its end use for the end user. Um, and we're, we're happy about that, um, that, that you see the benefit to that. And, and also, you know, that, that we can, um, you know, compete in a, in a marketplace and, and be successful by using transparency. So that, that, uh, um, that transparency element in, in that regard now contributes to wellness. Do you, what, what do you foresee, uh, in that? in that venue uh, that, that we are still remaining to do? Are we, are we far from a target? I, I think you have some companies that are really have taken a leadership position in where they stand with wellness and particularly with, with chemical transparency and, and really disclosing what types of, of chemicals that they use. I think that not all companies are equal in terms of, of what they're doing. And I think that's something for people to, to be cautious 
um, about. As you said, um, you know, there are certifications, there are third-party certifications, you know, where people are disclosing, you know, what's in, in their product and even, you know, from an emission standpoint, you know, that their products are, are low emitting. Um, I think there's a lot of tools out there today to help people with, uh, with those decisions and to, to be able to select products that, um, you know, promote health and wellness. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Declare, and for, for people who are, are, are listening, Declare is the certification, uh, product certification required for Living Building Challenge Projects, the most stringent uh, green building rating system on the planet. And the really great, uh, I don't know, comparison there is that the, the Declare standard uh, requires you to disclose now, currently in the new version, down to 100 ppm, um, and we're seeing the, the 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 kind of best of uh, organizations and in, in certifying companies matching that disclosure level, and, and it's one that that we collaboratively work to um, get referenced the the 100 ppm level within the lead rating system. In in you know a, a real brief. Um, on your experiences in the in the MR tag, without sharing anything confidential, obviously, um, how how do you see that's progressed? You know, in the span of time that you served uh, on the MR tag. No, I, I actually think there's been a huge change in in the way that companies talk about their their products. Um, Armstrong. Uh, has had a long history. We have what we call our product stewardship technical committee. We have a really huge product stewardship um, committee that we've had for for a long time. And that committee, the function of that committee is actually one of the functions is we look at the chemicals. We evaluate the chemicals. We really pay attention to every single chemical um, that we use at at, the, at our company. And and so you know if something is getting, if something happens, if some new research comes out associated with uh, a particular chemical, for instance, maybe an IARC or or some entity determines that you know it's a carcinogen or a reproductive toxin, and and we didn't know that. We we take action. We take steps to to get that product to phase it out of our our products. And I think historically that's something that we didn't really talk about. You know, we didn't. You know, there was sort of a stigma it, with you know the fact. Oh my gosh, they were using it. As opposed to, oh my gosh, they're so proactive that they they automatically take the steps necessary to get that out before they are required by regulation or whatever to to remove that that chemical. So I think it's changing how we talk about um, chemicals as you know as companies as as manufacturers. And I think that lack of uh, of manufacturers talking about things that we were doing, um, I think that kind of created suspicion or maybe created kind of that we were not willing to be transparent or open. So I, th I think the dialogue has changed. I think people are more willing to talk about it. I know when health product declarations first came out, you know, as a company and not just my company, but other companies from a legal perspective, were really concerned about liability. You know, if we say that this chemical is in there and then the health product declaration says it's, uh, you know, um, a carcinogen or or an asthmatic or or it says something, you know, how what will that mean from a from a liability perspective? So I think it's and now there and I don't know how many health product declarations that are out there, but I know there's thousands and thousands of them. Um, and so I, I think that people are, are, are not as afraid 
to, to disclose that information. Um, and I think it's just becoming kind of an accepted practice that to do business, this is what you're going to do moving forward. And I think that the USGBC has had a huge part in, in, leading, in leading that change. I think you also see that not only with chemical transparency or with material transparency, but you also see that with life cycle assessment. Um, I was on the materials and, and resources advisory or um, technical advisory uh, group uh, for a while, and we talked about incorporating life cycle assessment uh, into the lead rating system a lot. And it was something that, that, was, that was really challenging. How do you get this in, into the system in a meaningful way? And I think now what you're seeing is you see a proliferation of people doing environmental product declarations. You see that information being out there and available for, for the public to review and to better understand the impacts associated with, with products. And I see it as being nothing but, but positive because it gives people choices and helps them make you know, informed choices about you know, what they're going to do moving forward. I, I think you really touched down on the, the, the deep basis for material transparency. It's not requiring the product manufacturers to share their secret sauce uh, recipe on how they made things because we're looking to find uh, we're, we're looking to basically determine that there's no compounds in there that are going to be injurious to the end user and injurious during the manufacturing process. And, and that's why we've set that threshold at 100 ppm. And, <clears throat> you know, in, in the best entities that are evaluating that will follow ISO protocols in, 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 you know, there'll be ISO 14024 compliant. Um, in in the way they do it and document it, so there's no there's no bias or basis there, and and there's certainly um, no need to worry about about disclosures, uh, you know, because the the greater good is being solved by sharing that there is uh, using material transparency to share that that uh, you know the product is suitable for use and it's not going to be injurious and it's not damaging for the environment and you know touching down on the lca portion of it that it's really critical that we get you know the most use out of out of our resources that we can and i'm going to circle back to you know to your efforts to do recycling um and and taking 150 million pounds out of a waste stream is is really an amazing step forward you know i'm seeing that as my impact of the day um you know, if, if you can do that, that's, that's, a, you know, really, really substantial. No, that is. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big impact. And I don't think you necessarily, you don't really realize how big of an impact um, that that makes. So we're very proud of our on and on recycling program. And we encourage people to, to, to take part in uh, our recycling program. Yeah, it, it, it is really awesome. Um, I'm I'm actually at the end of the stuff that I wanted to discuss. Was there anything else that you wanted to share with with our audience today, Amy? No, I think I think we went through the four pillars. I, I think this has been a, a great conversation, Daniel. Yeah, so you know you can see why from the dialogue how I enjoy the four pillars because we can see the interconnectedness of of so many things. Uh, related to the, you know, to the built world um, in, in why that interconnection is important. So um, I want to thank the listeners for continuing to tune in to Build for Impact. 
and especially thank you, Amy, for taking the time uh, out of your busy day to join us and, and share some of those best practices and uh, inspire other others to, uh, you know, follow in your footsteps and emulate, with, you know, the great work that's being done at Armstrong. It was fun. Thank you. Well, folks, tune in again. Again, send forward your questions uh, and responses and uh, look forward to future uh, Build for Impact uh, programs. Thank you. Bye.